0: Well, welcome church. Also, happy new year and happy first snow or whatever was on the ground this morning as well. I am not Pastor Eric Barton, but fear not, he will be back next week. Mm -hmm. You will be back, right? So my name is Dan Black. Uh, It's my pleasure to be with you this morning. Um, My lovely wife Emma and I have been part of Bethel for about the last four years, and now we also get to bring along our 10-month-old daughter, Evelyn. So if you listen closely, you might also hear her during the sermon as well. If you're here last week, uh, Nathan preached for us. He was out of Isaiah chapter 9. He did a wonderful job of wrapping up Advent, talking about the gift of light given to us through Christ. This morning, uh, we have the opportunity to walk through the passage that we just read, and this is one of those passages that is very dear and near to me. We all have portions of Scripture that are significant and are special, to us. Like an oasis in the desert, like a spring of fresh water, like a deep well, we return to it, we drink from it, and every time it seems to refresh us a little bit more than the last. So for me, one of those passages is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Before we get started, let's pray and then let's jump in. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for the love that you have for us. God, we thank you that time and time again, you have a history of using broken, imperfect people and still putting forth your purpose. And God, that's not going to be any different today, Lord. Um, I am not good enough, I am weak but we know that you are a God who delights to take our weakness and still work through it so that way all the glory may be to you and not to us. So God, that's our prayer, that you will be faithful to do what you have done and we can trust you that you will do it again too, Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. We ask these in your name. Amen. Alrighty, so Corinthians, as much as I am excited to actually get to the very last verse, we do need to have some context for what is going on. Uh, when we talk about a book in the Bible, we know that it is written to a people in a place for a period of time for a purpose, the same with First and 2 Corinthians. This was written by Paul as he's going in his missionary journey. He actually stops in Corinth. Uh, He would go to the synagogue, and he would proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God there. And after receiving a lot of feedback and, well, negative feedback from the Jews and a lot of opposition, Scripture says that Paul kind of shook out his robes and said, okay, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. So he actually goes to the house of a Gentile God-worshipper named Titius Justus, who, oh, by the way, lived directly next door to the synagogue. So that's where he set up shop, and the church grew for a year and a half as he stayed and he taught them there. This was gonna be a combination of both Jews and Gentiles. From here, Paul moves on, and we begin this tumultuous relationship with the church in Corinth. He gets reports and letters back that things are not going too well there, right? There are divisions in the church, there are false teachers teaching a false gospel. And also, there are these repetitive, sinful lifestyle decisions happening that, that are just incompatible with gospel living. Across time and letters, he ends up writing four letters to the Church of Corinth. Two of them we do not have. They're missing. We just have a reference to them. But the other two in our scripture, first and Second Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians has more of a pastoral tone to it, where Paul is trying to guide and direct. But 2 Corinthians is actually a little bit more different. We see Paul not as the pastor, but we see him as the apologist. We see him as the big A apostle, given authority by Christ. For while many of those in the church had, um, they they had gone, okay, Paul, we cease our rebellion against you, there are still some who are trying to buck his authority and, in turn, his gospel, right? So in 2 Corinthians, Paul is proving that he is not a self-appointed peddler of words, but that he is chosen, commissioned, and consecrated by Christ to preach this gospel. And he's doing this not out of a sense of pride, but he's doing this for the sake of the true gospel, that others might not be taken away through false teaching. We kind of start to see this in the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where some of these naysayers say, okay, Paul, um, give us some letters of recommendation. What, why are you able to say these things? Like, what right do you have? Oh, and those letters of recommendation make sure they are APA and MLA formatted too, right? I can just imagine Paul ripping out whatever hair he has left at this point and just saying, letters of recommendation? Church of Corinth, look around. You are my letter of recommendation. If God, had not preached me, if God had not used me to preach his gospel in the church, there would be no church here. So no, I do not have a letter of recommendation written with ink. But my letter of recommendation is written by the Spirit. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I, Paul, I can say this not because I find sufficiency inside myself, but because God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. For the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. And from here, Paul gets to launch into this beautiful comparison about the Old Covenant, the letter, versus the New Covenant and the Spirit. So we're going to pick up here in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, this is talking about those Ten Commandments, the law, the Old Covenant, and it might seem a little bit harsh that Paul is jumping out of the gate calling it ministry of death. But here, Paul is diving directly to the point The law is instructive, it's informative, but it's not intended to save. Rather, it shows us our increasing need to be saved. The law is diagnostic. It's an x-ray, right? It can show you what's wrong. It can show you that the bone is broken, but it has no power to actually fix anything. This is the law. It can only show us how dead we actually are. Are, But even so, this ministry of death, when it was given, it was a thing of glory. So right here, as Paul is talking about Moses, he is quoting back to Exodus 33, which is a pretty fun story. So Moses is interceding with God on behalf of the stiff-necked Israelites. Remember that whole golden calf scenario just happened, and so he's talking with God about it. And in the course of that conversation, a question bubbles forth out of Moses and says, please, show me your glory. God, who who are you like? What is your name? God says, okay, Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim to you my name, Jehovah, but you cannot look at my face, because if you do, you would die. You would not survive my glory. So here. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. I will cover you with my hand. I will pass by. Then I'll lower my hand and I'll let you see my back. So it comes to be God protects Moses with his hand. He passes by and he declares his gracious and merciful and just name. Then he lowers his hand. Now, as for what Moses saw, we actually don't know. Maybe he saw the train of his royal garments, as Isaiah would see later in a vision. Maybe it was just the hymn. We don't know. All we know is the reaction of Moses, which was quickly falling to the ground and worshiping, right? Face to the ground. Moses, he continues to get the law from God. He comes back down the mountain after this experience. And little known to him, Moses is actually glowing, right? His face is shining. The text says he's full out radiating beams. Initially, his brother Moses wouldn't even come to him because of what's going on. And I kind of understand if my sister started radiating beams from her face, I probably would not get near her either right? So over time, Moses eventually brings the Israelites and Aaron back to him. He declares the word of God to him, but then Moses has to take a veil, and he has to cover his face because the glory emanating from it is too much for them to bear. They can't even gaze. They cannot even look. So Moses has to cover his face, Such was the giving of the Old Testament. The glory, the earthquakes, and the fire, and the lightning. But yet, that was a ministry that only held death. So how much more glory is this new covenant going to have that Paul is talking about? In verse 9, "...for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory." Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come, to, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Right. A single candle can intensively illuminate a dark room. But in the light of the sun, what power does it have? Right. Such is the new covenant of Christ. It so greatly outshines the old in verse 11, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Moses did not glow forever, right? The light of the old covenant faded with time. Here it's as if Paul is gazing back with his gospel eyes and he gets to see the fragility and the futility of the old covenant. A law that can manipulate action But cannot make a heart new. A repetition of sin and sacrifice and death and blood, season to season, year to year, generation to generation. But now, because of the new covenant, because of one perfect sacrifice, there is a permanent solution, a salvation for all people. And oh, how much more glorious it is. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very whole. We are very bold. Since, because, therefore, we have this joyful and coveted expectation in the new covenant, in the finished work of Christ. Because of that gospel, we find boldness. We are able to speak our words without concealment. We don't have to speak. From behind a veil. Right. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ it is taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over there. Hearts. Their minds were hardened. Another word for this is going to be calloused, as if they were covered with thick scales of skin. Paul is able to say this because he was a Jew whose mind was hardened, who could not clearly see. Remember, his Roman name was Paul, but his Hebraic name was Saul. And Saul was a Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised on the eighth day, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the law. He even watched and approved of the stoning of Stephen the first martyr. He was a Jew of Jew. He was breathing threats and murder against Christians. He was even on his way to Damascus to cause destruction. And what happened? He encounters Christ Suddenly, a light flashes around him. Dare we say, maybe even a ray of the glory of Christ? As soon as he sees that light, he falls face first to the ground. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus tells Saul to rise, go into Damascus, and he'd give them further instructions. So Saul rises and with eyes open, he can't see. We can almost hear echoes of Jesus and Isaiah, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear. So Saul must be led by the hand into the city where God sends Ananias, a Christian who Saul would have chained and cast into prison, and he is going to use Ananias to restore his sight. So he goes to Saul and says, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, in case you didn't figure that out, sent me to you so that you may regain your sight and also be filled with the Holy Spirit. After Ananias says these words, by the way, his name means gracious gift of Yahweh, called Jehovah, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. Take it in. Saul, who was a Jew, who had eyes open but could not see, was led by the hand to the gracious gift of God. And callous skin fell not only from his eyes, but also from his mind and from his heart. Right? This is verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Not only did Paul receive his sight, he received the Spirit and was strengthened to speak in the synagogues that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This, This is the gospel, right? It's Jesus. It's a person who was born into our context, fulfilled the true requirements of the law so that we could be sealed by the Spirit. What God demands through the old covenant, he freely gives in the new. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The Lord is the Spirit, the great helper Jesus promised to his disciples. It resides in us. It is not behind the veil of the temple, nor is it hidden in the Holy of Holies, but now it is placed inside these jars of clay. Where the Spirit is, there is freedom. Now, this is not a prosperity gospel. This is not a name and claim to remove our sickness and our suffering and our situation. But we who are in Christ Know what we have been freed from. We have been freed from sin and self, the our ultimate oppressors. And in context of this passage, Saul Paul is excited because we have freedom of unabated, unfiltered, unveiled access to the Father. Now that's freedom. Verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I should just stop there. And we all, plural, not singular. This process of sanctification, this process of me looking less like Dan and more like Christ, it doesn't happen by myself, but it happens together. It happens in the context of the church, the new covenant community. The New Testament knows no unchurch Christian. And we all, like I need y'all we all with unavailed face beholding the glory of the Lord. Now, I do like this translation of the ESV. This word beholding means intentional gaze, fixed focus, to be looking. But there's also a little bit more nuance with it as well. Another way to translate this is reflecting as a mirror the glory of God. As the moon has no light apart from the sun, so we have no glory apart from the Father. So this idea of beholding, reflecting, fixing our eyes and reflecting him. That we are being transformed into the same image, being transformed, an active transformation that is continuing to occur from one degree of glory to another. Singular, not plural, one degree. And I don't know about y'all, but sometimes my sometimes my sanctification needs more than one degree. Like, can I get two? Can I get three? My small group is putting together a petition for five. Okay, but like this process of sanctification is not really done on my own mark. I can't stop my foot and make God go faster. But no, and God's wisdom. He is changing us. He is sanctifying us from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Our justification, our sanctification, and our transformation, they only happen through the power and work of the Spirit, not because of our own strength, not because our ability to follow the law, not because of our ability to become our own saviors through self-help. Right. This only comes through the Spirit. So wrapping up, we have three big ideas. Okay. The first, the covenant is complete. The covenant is complete. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I have come to fulfill them. So the requirement of the law, both action and heart intention that we could not do, he perfectly did. And he freely gives to those who trust him. It's completed. It was started by God and finished by him. And this is the gospel. This is, this is why... We are here, right? The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem, himself, to, to redeem us to himself and also to one another. Our second big idea, the veil is vanquished. We need not hide or be hidden. When Moses sees the back of God, he falls face down to the ground. When Saul sees a a passing glance of Jesus' glory, he falls down face to the ground. But we, indwelled by the Spirit, we are fixing our eyes, gazing, focusing on the glory of the Lord, being transformed into his image. And that leads us to our final big idea. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. So church, what are we beholding? What am I beholding? May we behold Christ, crucified and resurrected. And as we behold, may we become. We do not need to become our best self this year. We need to behold a better Savior. And in beholding his goodness, we are able to reflect and become his image to a desperate and dying world. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that what you start, you finish, that you have required, that you have filled the requirements of the covenant, and that you freely give it to us, Lord. Uh, We pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, that you would cause our eyes to focus on you, and in beholding you, may we become like you to those around us. Uh, We ask these things in your name. Amen.